is the fifth part of our series on big faith. In fact, today we're going to be talking about one of the ways that God uses to build our faith. We're going to try to make sense of Jesus' command to care for others. You'll understand that better in a few moments. Uh, big faith is a reminder. Big faith belief that God is who He claims to be and that He will do everything He has promised. No ifs, buts, excuses, provisals, limitations, or whatever. He is who He says He is and He will do what He says He will do. That's big faith. Big faith is a big deal for Jesus because trust was devastated in the garden. Genesis chapter 3, Sam came along and was dishonest with us. That's been ever since that Jesus called him the father of lies and that his native language is lies. And unfortunately, we're dumb enough to believe him. When we believe him, there's dishonesty and we just trust God and then we just obey God. And God has been in the process of trying to fix that ever since, working to restore trust into the universe that he created to run basically on trust. And so he reveals the truth about himself, encourages us to trust him, and then he begins a transformation in us. So how does Jesus build big faith? That's what we've been talking about. The five things that the Spirit uses and Jesus uses to build big faith in us. Practical teaching, providential relationships, private discipline, personal ministry that we're going to talk about today, and pivotal circumstances. Three of these things are things that we actually can take a part in. We have some control over. Uh, we can make sure that we're exposed to practical teaching and we actually put it into practice. We can practice and participate in the private disciplines of prayer, Bible study, giving, that kind of thing. And personal ministries we're going to talk about today, we have to get involved in some way, shape, or form. The providential relationships and the physical circumstances are things that God does in working in our lives and orchestrates and brings together. Uh, we mentioned, you know, it would just be really creepy to walk up to somebody and go, Hi, my name is Mark, and I'd like to have a providential relationship with you. Call 911 quickly. That's just creepy. There is an event. We're going to be talking about. Uh, and looking at an event or a couple of events in Jesus' life that illustrated how he uses personal ministry to stretch us and to build big faith, and how he did it in his first followers. Matthew chapter 14, we're going to be looking at verses 14, uh, verses 13 through 33. Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 to 33. You can look it up in your Bibles, you can look it up on your. Uh, the Bible's in the rack. You can use your phones or you can read along with me up here. When Jesus heard what had happened, I'll just stop right there because we're getting, you know, it's like the middle of the chapter. What had happened? John, his cousin, his forerunner, had been beheaded. John had this nasty habit of telling King Herod that he was doing something wrong. And what he'd done is he stole his brother's wife brought her over to live with him. And uh, John kept saying, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. And so, uh, well, he lost his head. Um, 
so Jesus heard what had happened. He withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. He wanted to be alone. He and the disciples, they needed to be alone. And hearing of this, hearing that Jesus was withdrawing, the, the crowd followed him on foot from the town. And when Jesus landed, he saw he saw the large crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Oh, they were compassion. Jesus had compassion on people. There are many things that, that every time he had compassion, he saw people had a need. And he met it. He was moved to action. He was going to feel sorry for people. I mean, you can feel sorry for people and not do a thing about it. Most of us are immune to those commercials on TV. Big sad eyes. Surely you can afford $35 a day. Just don't eat, you know, those kinds of things. And you know, excuse me, God. Um, Jesus just moved with compassion. We're about to notice something about his disciples. They weren't particularly moved with compassion. He spent the day healing them, and as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place. Jesus said, Yes, that's why we came here. Uh, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away. Now, I'm just reading between the lines, and I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure they've been waiting all day to say that. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. In other words, they're hungry, we're hungry, we're tired, we want to rest, get rid of them. And Jesus replied, and here's where it gets really interesting. And this is the example, this is the illustration of personal ministry. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, there are times when I wish I could be transported back in time to look at people's reactions. To look, to see the look on the faces of the twelve disciples. And they did come to Jesus and said, They're hungry. We're hungry. We're tired. Get rid of them. And he goes, No! You feed them. Did you, you know, it's like they're thinking, Did you miss the part where we said, We're hungry? We're in the middle of nowhere. You give them something to eat. He asked, Jesus wants them to ask for two reasons. Now, he, he's doing this on purpose. He's not bored. Okay? He's doing this on purpose. He's trying to teach them a lesson. But first of all, Jesus is moved to compassion because the people are hungry and he wants to help them. But the second thing, the most important thing is, he wants to stretch the disciples' faith, their confidence in him. And his ability to meet needs through them. And Jesus says the same thing to us, by the way. Jesus says the same thing to you and to me. You meet that need. You take care of people. You do this. We 
between my uh, sophomore and junior year of college, I went with uh, a group of guys and gals from my home church in Marion, Indiana. We went to Columbia and uh, helped build a church building. That was, or that was interesting. But that's, that's not that's a different part of the story. I went there. I was, I was a pre-med major. Some of you have heard this before, but I was going to tell you again. Uh, I was a pre-med major. I was expecting to be a doctor. I loved science. Science was easy. Science was really, I, I'm not honest. For everybody that hates science, I'm very sorry. I know there are people who just hate science. I love science. I love science because it's easy to teach. I was looking forward to becoming the doctor. I've been looking forward to being the doctor since I was in grade school. And as we were in this city in Columbia, we went by the hospital and the university. And we talked to the guy, one of the, one of the kids, living next door. The oldest in the family of about 10 or 12, if I remember right. Uh, and he was working on his Ph.D. in biology. He was getting his Ph.D. in biology. He was actually working on cloning frogs. Whoa. That was, that was impressive. But there was something that God did in the middle of that the end of our time there that kind of messed up my plans. Uh, he, uh, he challenged me with this. These people, and most of the people in the world don't really need a doctor. They need shepherds. Spiritual shepherds, pastors. Now I was a pastor's kid. Twice. My mother and my father are both, were both, were being pastors. So I didn't have what really had any desire to be a pastor. I was as far as I wanted to go. Thank you very much. My initial response to Jesus was no, 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 no. Until he offered an ultimatum, I'm going to go to seminary. Where are you going to go? Oh, okay, I guess I'll go with you. Um, and it was in the middle of that first semester when I had another heart to heart with him, and I, I told him, I'm pretty sure I am going to be the first mistake you ever made. I remember I was standing, I know where it happened, and I survived. So I realized that in itself is amazing, right? I survived seminary. I survived. Uh, I survived several things, and still I'm a pastor because that's what God has called me to do. But there's a continuing challenge. It's not done. He's not done. He keeps challenging me. Keeps inviting me to do things. He's keeps calling me out into the community in new ways to be a part of building bridges for people who don't have any relationship with Jesus in our county so they can enter God's kingdom family. And I 
think life is interesting. I'm going to turn 60 this week. Please don't applaud or anything. Yeah. I'm excited. I know. I frankly was not looking forward to 60. I was thinking, you know, that's, that's old. But, you know, it's not really old because I, I found uh, a guy who's much older than me. Okay? This guy is this guy's, uh, late 70s. And he wrote this statement and sent it out. He just sent it out to a whole bunch of people on his email list. And I just thought, well, that was just for me. I don't care what anybody else says. This is for me. And I've got it. I'm going to read it again on, on my birthday this week. It's one sentence. The single most productive and profitable decade of your life is typically your 60s. Happy birthday, Mark. I want to enter my most productive and profitable decade. I'm excited. Well, you know, some of you are going, yeah. I don't care. I'm excited. I'm looking forward to this. The challenges are still there. There's size. I don't know. Half the time, I'm just going to be honest with you, and some of you are going to go. I, you, you probably thought this already, but there are times when I feel like I'm in over my head and I don't have the foggiest idea what I'm doing because he keeps asking me to do different things. It's like I'm standing there with the disciples. I'm hungry. I'm tired. And I want a break. And he says, you see it. What? That's a good question. Well, I want to ask you, what's, what's, what's going on for you? Because Jesus is always, always inviting us to be with him. What, what is stirring up compassion in you? Not just feeling bad for people, but making you want to do something. What? What is one need is Jesus going to you? What are you trying to avoid? What is it you don't want to ever think about, talk about? Uh, because the very thought of doing it scares you. It may be in the church, it may be out of the community, but working with people, but it's just the, the whole idea is, is terrifying to you. But what is Jesus bringing to your attention over and over and over and over again? I'm not talking about guilt or condemnation. Uh, guilt, well, you guys, when you get to heaven, you ask my parents. Guilt never did work on me. Uh, it, it just did. And I'm not trying to put guilt on you, but there, there's a thing, there's a thing that God does in our life where we just have this non-stop noticing of the need. It seems like everywhere we turn around, it's there. Like you know, when you get a new car, you thought, "Wow, this is the only car this color in the world." Until you drive it off the lot, and it seems like the first three cars you see are exactly the same color. How did that happen? I'm pretty sure that the dealer sold three more cars right after you. I, no, I don't know. It's just because all of a sudden we start noticing things we hadn't been noticing before. And that's one of the ways God works in our lives. He just makes us notice over and over and over and over and over again. And He's just constantly inviting us to be with Him and to work with Him. Come on, you need that need. You need that need. You see that. And so the disciples, they respond and they said, 
We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, we're not talking wonder bread. We're talking pita bread. So, five loaves of pita bread doesn't sound like nearly as much as five loaves of wonder bread, right? Okay, so then we got, we got five pitas and two fish. And I have no idea what the size of the fish were, okay? But I'm pretty sure they weren't like this. Because who carries two fish like this out in the middle of nowhere? Okay? So they had two fish. By the way, that's our, that's our response to, to Jesus. Most every time, excuses. Don't have enough. Don't have enough time. We don't have enough training. We don't have enough experience. We don't have enough resources. We don't have enough. We don't have enough. We don't have enough. All we have is five little loquita breads and two fish. And Jesus' response to them is to bring them here to me. Okay, you got a staff lunch. Bring it. Come on. Give it to me. And Jesus doesn't want what you don't have. Everybody goes, oh, that's a relief. Right? He doesn't want what you don't have. But he does want what you do have. He simply asks you to give what you have. And so they give him their five pebas and their two fish. And he, Jesus, directs the people to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. Now, I think kind of, in, in my mind, I, it, it's like this. Jesus is standing here, and he, he tells all the people to sit down, and they sit down, and there's the twelve disciples standing in front of him, and he goes, and he thanks you for this food, you know, and, and uh, then he breaks, you've got five Peters, right? You've got twelve guys. So he starts breaking the Peters, and somehow, Breaking the pitas, five pitas ends up with every guy who has bread in his hand. And then he has two fish, and I, I don't know how you break fish. That'd be interesting to watch fish on its own. Uh, but he has two fish, 12 guys, and but he hands it all out to them. And I would love to see the look on their face, but my, my thinking is he handed each of them just enough for them. There's enough here and enough fish here for me to have a fish sandwich. And then he looks at him and says, turn around and give it away. And I'm sure one of the guys is going, you mean they, they're still back there? They didn't go away? So they did the only thing they knew what to do. They turned around to the first person they met and they gave them what they had. Jesus prayed and thanked God for what they had and what they had given to him and gives it back to them to distribute and they did what they knew how to do. They gave out the food and they just kept giving and giving and giving. 
So how can you make sense of Jesus' invitation and the command to care for others? What can you do when he asks you to serve others as the answer to your prayer for them? It's really easy to pray for all the people who are hungry and all the people that are sick and all the people who are all these people, many people, and pray for us. God help them and bless them. And what if all of a sudden he says to you, you need that. Oh God, bless those you in my world. Then you get it. Good idea, you do it. Oh Lord, help the ladies in my neighborhood know you. That's a great idea. Go for it. What are you doing? Well, he just turns your prayers around and says, okay, let's do it. When he invites you to care for others, do what you know how to do, and trust Jesus to do what only he can do. Give him your lunch. Let him bless it. And then just start giving it away. Here's the rest of the story, by the way. The rest of this event. They all ate. People in the crowd, they all ate and were satisfied. So the two of them three sandwiches got three sandwiches. The ladies who only wanted a half got a half. Right? They all went away satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Jesus built their faith in them. He turns to them and says, You feed them. I go, Well, we can't. All we got the sack lunch. You can give me the sack lunch. And he asked them to do what they could do pass out the food. And he did what only he could do. He multiplied the bread and the fish. And everybody went home satisfied with leftovers to do. But he's not finished. He wanted to hammer this lesson in. So he continues. Immediately. Who has they got all the leftovers collected? I don't know what they did with these leftovers, by the way, because we don't know. And Jesus says immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side of the lake while he was while he dismissed the crowd. And after he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Now I just have to pause here for just a moment to point out to you that Jesus practiced his private discipline. Jesus prayed. If Jesus prayed, we ought to pray. My logic is simple. Even I can follow, right? Jesus prayed, we should pray. If he needed to pray, we need to pray. Okay, that was another sermon and we're not going to repeat it. So he's up there, he's praying by himself. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them. 
walking on the lake. Not, not around the lake on the beach. Walking on the lake, on the water. And when the disciples saw him walking on the water, on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. Now, there are people who believe, and, and it is, uh, it's okay for people not to agree with me. And I, that's fine. And you don't have to agree with me either. But there's, there are people who believe that this whole story was made up. And I have a hard time believing that. When we make up stories about ourselves, do we ever make ourselves look worse? But we usually make ourselves look better, right? And so, if, if I was making up this story about myself, but I was in this boat, and then, you know, we were in a terrible storm, and we were rowing and rowing and rowing all night, and here comes Jesus walking on the water, and when we saw him, we just started cheering hard, go, 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 go. Because he's Jesus, man, he's awesome. Right? No? Big professional, professional fishermen screaming like babies in the night. They're scared. And they were honest enough to tell the truth. What happened? Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, you decide. Don't be afraid. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. I don't know who you are, but you were walking on water. That is not natural. But I will try not to be afraid. And Peter, I don't know what was going on in Peter's mind. But he said, Lord, if it's you... Tell me to come to you on the water. Tell me to come to you on the water. I think he's taking the lessons of big faith that he's been learning to a whole new level. And he said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. Invite me out of my place of comfort and security. Jesus said, Come. Not a big long speech, you know. You are sincerely invited to attend the massively impressive walking on water miracle with you. No, you come on. And Peter, now see, Peter knows how to do this part. Peter knows how to get out of a boat. Get down out of the boat. Trusting Jesus for the rest of us because he walked on the water before Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. Now I'm going to pause for just a moment because there's some fact that we often get missed in this, this story. When we tell the story, we all, a lot of people get all over Peter because he stopped looking at Jesus who got messed up by the wind and the waves. There are only two people we know of who ever walked on water. One of them was Jesus and the other guy was Peter. There were 11 other guys out there hanging onto the boat for dear life. 
if anybody was a disappointment and a frustration, it would have been the 11, not the guy in the water. And I love his prayer. It was a really effective prayer. I'm in over my head. Yeah, immediately. Not after he'd given him a long lecture. But immediately. Jesus reached out. Caught Peter and said, You have little faith. Why did you die? Now, we have no idea because that's all printed and we have no idea of Jesus' tone of voice. But I think it was kind of like more of like what we do when we're trying to teach our kids to walk or when we're trying to learn how to ride a bike or we're trying to get a new skill. And it's like, oh, oh, great job. Let's do it again. I don't think he, he was tuning Peter out. I think he was trying to encourage him. Oh, man, you're crazy. Oh, just a little bigger, buddy. Come on, let's go again. They get back in the boat. When they climbed into the boat, the wind died. I don't know how far Peter made it. They had to walk a little ways to get back to the boat. They climbed into the boat. And then those who were in the boat worshipped him, not Peter, Jesus. Worshipped Jesus saying, truly, you are the Son of God. You know, that's kind of interesting. You know, the, the, the five loaves and the two fish, feeding 5,000 people, plus, or 5,000 guys plus women and children, that was pretty impressive. But yes, now I know you're the Son of God. We're all over the place, aren't you? But they worshiped Jesus and declared big faith in Him. They learned the lesson. So how can we make sense out of Jesus' invitation for us to care for other people? And when He invites us to care for others, what can we do? We can do what we know to do. To trust Him. Do one over he can do. See, there are two events here with one lesson. Caring for others in Jesus' name will build big faith in him. When we act in obedience to Jesus' command to feed them, to meet their needs, he will multiply our resources and there will be more than enough to take care of. Jesus invites you into some kind of personal ministry. Do what you know how to do. Tell the pastor, you know, I might be interested in doing this. Come to the rescue mission and say, hey, I might want to volunteer for you. Whatever. Yes, yeah. But here's the thing. Jesus must issue the invitation. You decide. I have five feet and two fish. I'm going to go feed five thousand people in Jesus' name. You are on your own, and it won't happen. If you jump out of the boat out here on the bay, going. If you jump out of the boat, that's just stupid. If you jump out of the boat without Jesus saying, come, then you're going to be fish food. 
each one of us, we get the task of deciding vote on whether or not we're going to build big faith through personal ministry. If we say yes to Jesus' invitation, then our faith is going to grow. If we say no, you know, a week or two to think about that? How about a couple of years? If we just keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off, our faith is not going to grow. We just have a vote on this. And so the question is, what will you do? Will you act in faith? Will you trust enough to do something? Will you act in faith? Will you say yes to Jesus' invitation to join Him in caring for other people? What will you do? Jesus, you are the God of the impossible. There is nothing impossible for you. Some of us, few of us, may actually be praying Peter's prayer right now. And so we ask you to invite us out of our comfort and our security. We want to join you and your Father in the work you're doing. It's scary. We have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. But we are willing to be invited out of the boat to be with you. Most of us are more comfortable listening to your invitation. And that's, that's good. We know you love that. Some of us are wondering what impossible thing is it that you're going to open up for us. What? What are you going to ask us to do? And all of us are nervous. All of us are a little uncomfortable to think about the idea of losing comfort and security doing something we've never done before. So, Heavenly Father, God Almighty, when the challenges seem too big for us, remind us of your resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead to live and reign forever. And, and when the needs around us seem so vast and so immense and so beyond ever being solved, and yet, we ask that you remind us of the creative power you use to make everything out of nothing. And remind us that we can trust you do the things that only you can do. 